Um, if you're joining with us for the first time this morning or if you're visiting, we've, um, this is our last um, sermon in the book of Job. We've actually spent quite a bit of time um, doing something which is a little bit unusual. Normally when you go through the book of Job, people might do it in four to seven talks. Um, we've taken 20. Um, and I think for good reason. Uh, and that is because God has inspired so much of his word to be written. Uh, and if you're, if you're not familiar with the book of Job, let me give you a very one-minute summary. In chapters 1 and 2, everything goes south for Job. Uh, he loses his health, he loses his wealth, he loses his family, his children. Um, and it really comes as a result of Satan's challenge to God that the only reason people worship um, God, particularly Job, is of all the blessings that he gives them. The point being, take away the blessings and Job will not worship you. Probably the bulk of the book, and this is, I think, probably the hardest thing for Job to endure, is the suffering that comes about from his friends as they relay to him what we've termed here at Cornerstone a transactional theology, where you, you only get what you, or you only get what you give. So if you do bad things, bad things are going to happen to you. Do good things, only good things are going to happen to you. It's basically how really the rest of the world thinks about God and lives. It's summed up in the word karma. Uh, the only problem is, is it's the opposite to what the Bible says. Um, we have a God that gives us what we don't deserve. And the redemptive suffering or the suffering of Job points to the greater redemptive suffering of Jesus. Um, the prophet Elihu comes along, preparing the way for the Lord, a bit like John the Baptist before Jesus. The Lord speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. And in his speech, there's two parts. The first part, he's talking about all of these little creatures and, and the big stuff of the world that he's in control of. And then the second part is what we're going to look at today, where I think he ratchets it up and he looks at everything, even the chaotic forces of evil are, are in his hands. Um, and then we come to this final section of Job, which is so loved and well-known by everyone. So I'm going to read to us from Job chapter 42, starting at verse 1. Uh, and this is God's word. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you, and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly." You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. 
So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted him and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen and a thousand donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Kezia, and the third Karen Hakpak. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died, old and full of years. Let's pray. Father, what a great joy and delight it is to meet together today as your people. And we pray that you would open our ears, that we would hear you speaking to us through your word. We pray that you would be with me as I speak, Lord, that I would speak in a way that honours you and that blesses uh, everyone here that's listening. So, Father, we uh, look to you with confidence, for we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the most difficult issues a believer can face is trusting God when evil or suffering occurs in your life. It's what scholars refer to as the, the issue of theodicy, or how can a good God who is powerful and sovereign over all, allow evil or suffering to exist in his world. And especially for believer, I don't think it's so much a philosophical problem as it is a personal one. Why has the Lord allowed this certain thing to happen to me? This tragedy, this sickness, or some other kind of trial, you can fill in the blank. Does it mean that he doesn't love me or care about me? Does he not, is he not concerned about the pain or the, the trauma or the suffering that I'm going through? That's an incredibly emotional and sensitive question to ask. And it's all the more powerful and or profound, I guess, or maybe you could even say perplexing, when you realise just how powerful God is. That as we looked at last week from his word, not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from his will. So how can the Lord allow both evil and suffering to exist in the world 
that he has created and continues to sustain. Well, the Bible doesn't give us really any trite or easy answers, but instead it gives us something, I think, much more satisfying. And that is it reveals to us the nature and the character of the God who is there. What's more, it shows us that God has a plan to ultimately make everything new. That there is going to come a day, and this has got to be one of the most precious promises in the Bible, hasn't it? Where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Where there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things will have passed away. It's a future hope that is so certain that God himself says in his word in the book of Revelation to the Apostle John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. It's a day when just like the final chapter of Job, everything is going to be made right. Just before we go uh, or get to that though, we're confronted with two very strange and mysterious creatures in Job chapter 40 and 41. They have the ominous sounding names of Behemoth and Leviathan. Christopher Ash points out that especially the term Behemoth is a plural name for a creature that is singular in more senses than one. First of all, it's singular in that it's one creature and not many. And secondly, it's singular in that it's unique, like nothing else in all of creation. And so the use of the plural to describe a singular animal conveys the idea that what we have presented before us here is something of a super beast. A creature which is the culmination of all of the other ones that have been mentioned in all of the preceding chapters leading up to this. And a similar kind of thing can be said about the monster that comes from the sea, the Leviathan. A lot of people don't know what to make of um, these two creatures. But I actually think they're the key to understanding the entire book. There's something which we'll get to in just a minute. The problem, first of all, is that they don't seem to be something that you would find in a zoo or even in the wild. This has led some people to speculate that maybe they are like dinosaurs, something of a creature that is now once lived but is now extinct. But even then, the details don't exactly line up because they are endowed, these creatures, with clearly supernatural abilities. So, for example, if you have your Bibles open, have a look at what it says about Leviathan in verses 18 to 21 of chapter 41. It's more like a traditional uh, dragon than it is like a crocodile or, or even a whale. God says, His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like rays of dawn. Firebrands steam, stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils. As from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds, his breath sets coals ablaze 
and flames dart from his mouth. Now this creature, oh, now what I'm saying here doesn't mean uh, that behemoth and leviathan are not real creatures. But just as the devil did through the serpent in the Garden of Eden, these creatures are presented with having extra overtones, you might say, of supernatural abilities as well. So please don't um, think that I'm suggesting that these two monsters are fictional. I circulated a couple of articles uh, to the congregation this week, which I think explains in more detail um, what these two beasts are referring to. There's, there's lots of extra biblical sources which provide greater colour to the religious and cultural context of the time. But as is always the case, when you come across a tricky passage in the Bible, the Bible itself, I think, provides the answer. It's what theologians refer to as the discipline of hermeneutics or of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Because God doesn't want us to be confused, but instead to be strengthened edified and most of all comforted by his word and especially when it comes to this particular passage in the book of Job which as I said is I think quite key. So all of the clues we need to identifying what these two creatures represent I think are contained elsewhere in scripture. That said there are three passages in particular which are pertinent in identifying what they might be. As you'll see, I've added a fourth one in your sermon outlines as a bit of a bonus. Rather than just work our way through the text of Job, chapter 40 and 41, though, we're going to do a little bit of Bible flipping this morning. And my goal is that in this way, you'll be able to better understand the text of Scripture for yourself. In a way, I'm going to give you the tools. You can go home and do the digging, and hopefully you'll find even more riches than I can bring you briefly this morning. Okay then, the first one uh, is from Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1. And as you'll uh, see, it's clearly more than a hippopotamus or a crocodile. The prophet Isaiah writes, In that day the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent, he will slay the monster of the sea. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the sea was particularly the place of danger and chaos. Today, we don't really think of the ocean that way because really, let's be honest, very few of us have anything to do with it. The sphere, I think, if we were to think of a modern day equivalent for something chaotic and dangerous to occur, where would it come from? out of space. That would fill us with the same kind of apprehension and dread which people throughout most of human history associated with the depths of the sea. Because the creatures which, which exist in them are just so dangerous and unknown. And as such, they pose the greatest threat to the order of God's creation. But once again, the Lord says that he is in total control. In fact, he even sets up the sea as something of a playpen for Leviathan to play in. The forces of chaos and death, which Job was afraid of, are nowhere near as powerful as the Lord himself. 
The second passage is from Ezekiel 29, and this one fills it out a bit more, and it makes a connection between the monsters of the deep and, in particular, the hostile nation of Egypt. Let me just read to you from verses 1 to 6. The prophet Ezekiel writes, In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the, on the twelfth day, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak to him and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great monster lying among the streams. You say, the Nile is mine, I made it for myself. But I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. I will pull you out from among the streams with all the fish sticking to your scales. I will leave you in the desert and you and all the fish of your streams. You will fall on the open field and not be gathered or picked up. I will give you as food to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air. Then all who live in Egypt will know that I am the Lord. In ancient Egypt, the, the gods they worshipped were often thought or said to take the form of various creatures. And so the god or the evil god of Egyptian pantheon, Seth, was presented as taking often the form of a red hippopotamus. What the Lord says to the Egyptians and their gods here, though, is that they are no match for him. He's not afraid of them, but instead will fish them out of the river and clean them up for dinner. Another relevant passage in this regard is found in Psalm 74, and in particular verses 13 to 14. In referring back, and this is again really significant, to the event of the Exodus, he says this, It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. Once again, the gods whom the Egyptians worshipped, the Lord turns into food. Such is his power and might. And by the way, the ten plagues of Egypt are really just not natural phenomena. They're a rebuke to each one of the Egyptian gods. Each time a plague is happening, it's saying that that particular god whom they worship is not in control. And that's why it all culminates with the, the plague of darkness because God, the Lord, says to Ra, the sun god, I can take your lights out. I can make it go dark and still create light where the people of God are. Now, I know I'm going pretty quickly through all of this, but hopefully you already get the picture. The Bible often uses the example of real creatures and then it endows them with extra meaning. The final passage is that of Exodus chapter 7. And this is significantly before all the plagues begin the Lord confronts the Egyptian pharaoh and his staff turns into a serpent. Just like in the Garden of Eden, though, this specific creature, don't think of it as just a snake, 
but he's something more like a dragon. Uh, That's why God says to the serpent, I think in Eden, that he'll have to crawl on his belly afterwards. He'll take his legs out from under him. It's not only a monstrous type creature, but even more significantly, it's consumed by God. The creature that Moses' staff becomes consumes the creatures that Egyptian um, magicians had made. Even before the event of the Exodus then, the Lord is powerfully foreshadowing Pharaoh's defeat. He's saying to Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt, I will consume you. Now, with all of that said, you might still be convinced that the creatures of Behemoth and Leviathan are just extraordinary creatures which just exist in the world somewhere. And if you do, that's totally fine. Lots of commentators who hold to that interpretation. And I think basically the same truth applies. There's nothing outside of God's power or, or his control. But the benefit of seeing that these creatures are endowed with supernatural abilities as well is that it brings the book of Job to a beautiful conclusion. You see, in the opening chapters of the book of Job, we learned of this malevolent spiritual figure referred to as the Satan. I think it's pretty clearly a reference to what the New Testament refers to as the devil. This evil being, whom 1 Peter 5 verse 8 tells us, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And that's precisely what the Satan is described as doing in Job chapter 1 and 2. He himself says to the Lord, after the Lord says, what have you been doing? I've been roaming through the earth, going back and forth in it. He could have added, looking for someone to devour, looking for somebody to stumble, looking for somebody to trip up. And from his subsequent speech and actions, this is what he clearly has in mind for the people of God. Everything he does and says is accusatory and destructive. But then, after the opening chapters of Job, we never hear about the devil again. Or do we? That is, of course, unless he is being referred to here in chapters 41 or 40 and 41 under the guise of Behemoth and Leviathan. Or, as we saw in Genesis chapter 3, as a monstrous serpent. Satan has a way of morphing into different forms, whichever it is which will provoke the most anxiety, distress or fear. If this is in fact the case, then Behemoth and Leviathan are emblematic of chaos and death. And then what the Lord says about them at the end of the book is actually a wonderful comfort. Because even chaos and death are in his hands. Even though they might be fearsome and terrifying to us, God leads them around like we do a pet dog or cat. It also goes a long way to explaining why Job says what he does at the start of chapter 42. As I read before, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. 
and no plan of yours can be thwarted. The devil is God's devil and he only does what God allows. You asked, who is this who obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. But then Job has this beautiful confession of faith. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. The answer to suffering, friends, is not really knowing the reason why. Because Job's never told why. Job's never told about the events of chapters 1 and 2. The key to suffering, friends, is knowing who is in control. That knowing that he even holds behemoth and leviathan in his hands. The one who can pull in leviathan with a fush hook and tie down his tongue with a rope. You know, the ancient Egyptians particularly understood this. Often in their pyramids, they would have these pictures of the Pharaoh who was seen as God incarnate, triumphing. And you know what he was seen as doing? Capturing a hippopotamus. Subduing Seth. Of spearing him in the nose so that he can't breathe and then leading it around with a rope connected to a harpoon. Such was the power of Pharaoh that he could do that apparently. Hippos were, and we might think, oh, they're just sort of bloated sea cows. But they were and still are the most dangerous mammal you'll come across in the world today. In fact, it's estimated that in Africa, between 500 and 3,000 people every year are killed by hippopotamus. It makes them the deadliest land animal in the world. Or I should say land mammal. Deadliest animal, ironically, is the mosquito. No wonder the ancient Egyptians made the error of worshipping hippopotamuses. Job repents before the Lord, though, because he realises that there is one who is infinitely stronger than even the Egyptian pharaoh. And once you come into his holy and divine presence and you realise that there's nothing more to say, you're simply left in awe as to how powerful and wise he is. That the Lord God Almighty literally is awesome. I mentioned this before, but we need to realise again that Job is never informed as to what took place in the heavenly realms. The Lord gives him no explanation of what took place in chapter 1 and 2. The answer to suffering, if the answer to suffering were merely rational, then this would have made sense, wouldn't it? But it's not. Because suffering is inherently spiritual. It's relational. As we looked at last week, it's only a problem if you believe in concepts such as God and good and evil. Otherwise, how can you know whether pain or sickness is really right or wrong? From a purely naturalistic perspective, you might even call atheistic humanism. It's just what happens, isn't it? But as C.S. Lewis reminds us in his book, The Problem of Pain, 
We can ignore him even in our pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts at us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, we can so easily do that, can't we? We can go through life ignoring God and being distracted by the pleasures and the attractions of this world. But God has to shout at us sometimes in our pain to get our attention. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion. But it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. What suffering ultimately does then is it generates, or it should, humility. At least when you respond like Job does in repentance and faith. Unfortunately, some people, when they suffer, they only become more bitter and hard. They curse God and they revile him even more than they did before. Make no mistake though, the pain we experience through suffering will either make us bitter or better. What is the benefit then if we respond in the way that Job does? Well, this is where we have to, I think, friends, be careful. Because just as God is sovereign in suffering so too he is in complete control of blessing. Now, what do I mean? Well, as we saw before, Job, in the end, is incredibly blessed by God, isn't he? And he receives twice as much as all of the things that he lost. What's more, Eliphaz and his two friends are rebuked for not speaking of the Lord what is right. And as such, Job is instructed to make atonement for their sins by sacrificing seven bulls and seven rams, which is huge. Now, not only is this incredibly expensive as an offering, but it illustrates the seriousness of their sin. It's also a burnt offering, which means that it literally went up in smoke. So it's not like, you know, they could make the offering and take some home and give some to their friends and share the meat with others. Instead, this was an offering which was completely consumed. It's also worth pausing at this point and considering how Job was vindicated in this act. Not before God, as he wanted, but before his friends who had been so mean. You see, God doesn't just tell Job to make a sacrifice for them, you know, in some kind of anonymous or even self-righteous, pious way. Now we're told, have a look in verse 9. We're told that they had to humble themselves and go to Job and ask him to pray for their forgiveness. It's by no means the major point of the book, but there is a profound theological truth being illustrated here as to what both repentance and forgiveness of one's enemies means. Or maybe I should say frenemies. 
Because forgiveness is the most difficult when it involves the people we value the most, isn't it? But it's a good reminder of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12 when he writes, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. In the end, the Lord sees everything that occurs and in his perfect timing, he holds everyone to account. But ironically, this is also where we can fall into the same kind of trap of transactional theology which Job's three friends had been guilty of. Because in his divine wisdom, the Lord might choose to delay when we receive these kinds of blessings from his hands. And we shouldn't expect to automatically be blessed materially in exactly the same way as Job was. At least not necessarily in the here and now. Otherwise, let's face it, people would repent and believe in him simply to get more stuff. And that's exactly the accusation Satan makes about Job at the very beginning. The only reason Job worships you, Lord, is because you've placed a hedge around him and you've blessed all the fruit of his, of his home and of his fields. And you know what? Sadly, it's exactly the same kind of false teaching that is often propagated in churches today. Turn to the Lord and you'll be materially blessed. All of your difficulties will be solved. All of your problems will magically go away. Have you heard something like that? It's not only false, it's satanic. For it's precisely the same thing the devil tempted Jesus with while he was in the wilderness when he showed him all the splendors of the kingdoms of the world. But what happened to the Israelites when he miraculously delivered them out of Egypt? When the Leviathan was gloriously defeated and the entire nation passed through the Red Sea? What happened next? Did they immediately enter into the promised land and enjoy all the fruits of God's earthly blessings? No, as we all know, they spent the next 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. They were tested by being made to literally hunger and thirst. To learn that they didn't just live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And it often got so difficult for them that they wanted to go back to Egypt. They pleaded again to be slaves. That even though they were free and no longer captives, walking by faith was so much more difficult than the security of being held a prisoner in chains. And isn't that precisely the same challenge we have today? When you follow Christ, he doesn't automatically teach you or tell you everything's going to magically work out. He doesn't tell you what he has planned or purposed for us in advance. Because like Job, he wants us to trust him. And that's what it means practically. Is that it often leads us 
right to the very edge, even of despair sometimes, where we think surely it's all about to collapse and it's all going to fall through. Like the Israelites foolishly concluded, Lord, you only led me to this point to die. Our Bible reading from Revelation 12 is a powerful point of application for us all in this regard. Here's this woman, which I think represents the nation of Israel. And she gives birth to the long-awaited Messiah. That's why he said to rule the nations with an iron scepter. And she has 12 stars around her head, 12 tribes. But another sign appears in heaven. And that is the devil portrayed as enormous red dragon who tries to devour the Christ child as soon as he's born. And it's literally what happened, isn't it? When Herod, like the Pharaoh before him, tried to have all the boy babies killed. I don't know, whenever I read that, it almost makes me laugh. As horrific as it is that he just committed genocide. But I would have thought at least one of the advisors to Herod would have said, let's not kill the boy baby thing. It didn't work out well before in the past. God raised up a mighty deliverer. Ah, I don't think it's going to work out again. But not only did the dragon or the ancient serpent, that is the devil or Satan, fail, but the woman flees into the desert for three and a half years, which I think is another symbol for a limited period of time because it's just simply half the number of seven. Seven being the perfect amount of time, three and a half being obviously half of that. Even more interestingly, though, did you notice what happens next? Did, you, did your eyes flick into chapter 13? Because here's the dragon standing on the shore of the sea. And what does the dragon see? But two beasts, one coming out of the sea and one coming out of the land. And if you look carefully at chapter 13, they bear an uncanny resemblance to behemoth and leviathan. The first comes from the sea, the second comes from the land, but the point we need to take away with is this. The lamb wins. They are no match for Jesus. As terrifying as these two demonic beasts are, they are no match for a lamb that has been slain. That's the paradox. For Jesus has total power, total control over everything. And there is nothing in all of creation which can compete with him. I love the way that this truth is expressed in verses 10 to 12 of Revelation 12. John says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, the devil, uh, who accuses them day uh, before God, day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Isn't that an interesting perspective on reality? We have a real and terrifying enemy that has been defeated. And the one thing Satan knows is his time is short. And so he's filled with fury, 
trying to wreak as much damage, as much havoc, as much destruction as he can. What can our enemy, the devil, possibly do to us that we should be afraid of? He's got nothing, friends. Because even things such as behemoth and leviathan, even things, demonic things, chaos, death, are defeated foes. So don't shrink back. Don't hold on to your life out of fear it can be taken from you. The comfort we are given, the encouragement we have is, as Job learned, the Lord is in sovereign control. As the Lord Jesus Christ himself says in John 10, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've spoken to us through your word this morning. We thank you for the enormous encouragement and comfort that it brings us. Lord, we do have a, a, a real enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion looking to accuse, to tempt and condemn us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to resist him standing firm in the faith. And most of all, Lord, you would help us not to be afraid. Help us, Lord, to realize the great truth that he is a defeated foe. And Lord, we pray that you'll go before each and every one of us this week, that you would uh, help us, Lord, to trust you, um, to stand firm in the faith, that we would know your strength and your peace. For we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.